Morning, everybody. How are you? Yeah. Morning. <laughs> hey, uh, my name is Chris Sherritt. I'm the discipleship minister here at South Spring, and we are going to read through John 16 this morning. So if you have your Bible, you know, turn there, and we're just going to cover the first 11 verses this morning as we continue on through the book of John and what is called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is giving his final his final evening with his disciples, and then he knows what's coming. They don't, but we're going to quickly move on to the events that we're familiar with. But I love that we're taking this slowly to, to go through all that Jesus is sharing with the disciples. But let's read first the first 11 verses, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Verse 1, <clears throat> I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So to give you a recap, what we've covered so far in this uh, discourse that Jesus is going through, I, I think it's important for us to remember, we, we're taking this really slow, but this all is happening like within a short amount of time, all of this teaching, and it is like drinking from a fire uh, hydrant for these disciples, because they're hearing all of this new stuff for, for them, for a lot of them for the first time. So chapter 13 is when we begin, they're up in the upper room there with the, the Passover with the Lord, and he washes their feet. And he talks about serving them and how they should serve each other. He talks about loving each other. This is the badge that the world will know that you're my disciples. And then in chapter, and he mentions the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 14, he starts saying, and like, I'm going to be going away, but I'm going to prepare a place. So I'll come back and get you. And, and this is a little confusing for the disciples, but he lands back on, but loving each other is important. And then chapter 15, he talks about abiding. So they leave the upper room and now they're on their way to the garden and Somewhere along the way, he's probably passing by a vine, and he's talking about abiding in him, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and this is the command I give you to love, and everything so far has really been all about love, and then everything kind of dramatically shifts with what we read the last couple weeks in verse 18, where all of a sudden, he starts talking about persecution and hatred of the world, and now he's talking about people are even going to kill you, thinking they're doing this in God's name, so... I want to make sure that you get kind of the picture of what the disciples are, are going through here. I'm actually going to move this now that I mentioned it. Hopefully Chris won't mind. This is from chapter 15. We're on 16 now. Um, I want you to imagine this. So when I was in junior high, a movie came out called Red Dawn. They remade it a few years ago. But it was this, it was a big deal. I was in junior high and it's about like the Soviets invade the U.S. And they're like ruling now. And I remember my friends and I talking about like, what would you do? Like if we were, yeah, we could band together. Like we had this, this plot, right, this plan. 
Here's the context of the disciples, just so you know, that they're living in occupied territory. They're living in Israel that is being ruled by the Romans. And if you were a disciple, and the disciples, a lot of times we think, in our minds, I think, because of movies and pictures and flannel graphs, we think of them as like 30 and 40 years old. They were probably teenagers. Most of them were probably teenagers. And so Jesus has been with them, and he's been encouraging them, and he's reminding them of, of a lot of things, but he knows something that they don't know. For them, this is just another Passover. He knows this night is literally about to be the, the last time we're really together under normal circumstances. Everything is about to change. In, in history overall, he knows he's gonna come and he's gonna die for the sins of the world, be raised again, but their lives are gonna be different. Everything is gonna be different. And these young men are about to have their world rocked. Because if you grew up in Israel during this occupied time, in your mind you're thinking, one day, Maybe in my lifetime, the Messiah is going to come and he is going to come in and he's going to take over and rule and reign from Jerusalem and free us. And we're going to not be under, you know, the suppression anymore. So that's kind of been your, your mentality. And then Jesus comes along and you start to think like, okay, maybe this is, maybe it's him. And it's going to happen maybe during my lifetime. And then you begin to realize like, and I'm even part of this. And so what's my role in all of this in the kingdom? And you've got all of these big aspirations of, I'm going to be, this is, you guys know the disciples over and over again argued with each other about who was greatest, who was going to sit where, and all this stuff. Even in Luke, it records, during the Last Supper, they argued about this. Isn't that crazy? Like Jesus just got done saying, like, I'm going to die for you. And they're busy arguing over this. Anyhow, this is what's been going on in their mind up until now. And then within the, the, the course of just two and a half chapters, Jesus starts saying things it's like, I'm going away, and there's going to be hatred, and don't let your hearts be troubled. He says that a few times. Because, I, again, if you could see the looks on their faces, they're probably going, wait, this is not, this isn't what I had planned. And now you're bringing in this Holy Spirit thing that that's not how it's ever happened before. And so their minds are being blown in the middle of all this, where now he's saying, you're going to die for your faith. And everyone who heard these words, all of them died a martyr's death, except John, John, they tried to kill him and put him in boiling oil, and he survived miraculously, but all of them were going to be suffering. So I want to make sure you get this as you're reading. This is why you keep seeing Jesus say, hey, I know you're sorrowful now. Let me comfort you. He's, it's because of what's happening in their worldview. It's like, okay, this is, this is how I thought things were going to turn out are not apparently going to turn out this way. So he comforts them. What we're going to look at this morning, I want to give you three applications of what Christ is calling them to do and us to do, and that is to witness for him to a hostile world, to this message that we're going to talk about when it comes to sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's three things that they needed to do and that we need to do as well in order to handle all of this, this um, tough stuff that they're going to face. So number one, prepare for persecution. Jesus makes it really, really clear things are going to change. If you look in verse uh, one, he says, I've said these, all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And that word literally means to be taken, to be caught off guard or to be trapped. Like I'm telling you this so that you're not surprised. You need to know this. Something's gonna happen and he reminds them you're all gonna fall away and sure enough, later that night, they do. Even they didn't, they didn't think they were going to, but they did that. And then he says they're gonna put you out of the synagogues. That to us might seem weird like, like, why is that a big deal? Kind of like going to church, like, we'll just go to another church. That's not how bad it was. To be put out of the synagogue means your whole community, your whole way of life, all of your, all of your interactions and stuff, you're ostracized now. This is a big deal. 
back in, in Luke chapter 9 with the story of the man born blind, his parents were scared to answer the Pharisees because they'd been told, like, hey, if anyone kind of supports this Jesus guy, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. Chapter 12, there's a bunch of religious guys who actually believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess it for fear of being put out of the synagogue. So when you read that, that was a big deal. It was a, to be a social outcast um, it, it, it is, uh, is something that they obviously wanted to avoid. So up until this point, chapters 13, 14, half of 15, the word love or loved has been used like 20 times. And then now you've got this hatred. Now you've got this, the world's gonna persecute you. So prepare for persecution. This is, this is the thing to think about. Imagine if he didn't warn them. Imagine if all of this happened, they had these grand dreams of this is the Messiah and then everything happens. They're about to go through the trauma of watching their leader be put to death, be betrayed. They're gonna be persecuted, scattered, a lot of them martyred, right? Imagine if he didn't warn, that, warn them, they would have thought, okay, maybe he wasn't the Messiah. Maybe we totally got this wrong. So their world is literally about to be devastated and so he's telling them, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you're not surprised. Peter says something like this, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 12. He says to believers, to us, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's probably pretty unpopular, I think, for us to think about just persecution, for sermons to be about that. A lot of our sermons in our churches today are kind of about life enhancement and how the Bible will make you happy, and it's uncomfortable. Maybe you feel uncomfortable thinking like, okay, but maybe, but persecution, I don't want to deal with that. It's promised. We in America actually have had a couple hundred years of, of, of ease, but it's not like that in the rest of the world. The video that we referenced that, that we were going to maybe show, second hour, uh, talks about this where the, the, the persecution of Christians is, is really at an all-time high all over the world. And so this is where Jesus comes in and he's warning them, but with every warning he gives them, he's got a counteracting promise. He gives them, this is what's gonna happen, but let me remind you of this. So I kind of put a, uh, a diagram up here that shows you the world versus Jesus. The world will hate you, but Jesus says, but I love you. In other words, I can live with the world's hatred if, if I know my Savior's love. The world will be your enemy, but I will be your friend. The world will, per will persecute, abuse, and kill you, but I will supply all your needs and give you eternal life. The world will give you trouble, I will give you peace. The world will give you sorrow, I will give you joy. The world is under Satan's power, but you will have the Holy Spirit's power. The world is bringing, will bring tribulation, but I have overcome the world. That's at the very end of chapter 16. So now they have all these promised troubles and persecutions, but they also have all of God's promises, but it's gonna be okay. So I'm warning you, I'm telling you this ahead of time. Um, and this is what really happened immediately after the ascension, that you've got Jews persecuting a lot of the Christians, including Paul. And then when Paul becomes a believer, he gets persecuted. You can read this in the book of Acts. And then after that, for a few centuries, you've got the Roman persecution, official persecution of, uh, of believers. And then you've got, after the Reformation, you've got the the Roman Catholic Church putting people to death as heretics. And again, all of this is they're thinking it's in the name of God or their gods. Nowadays, a lot of times it's militant Muslim groups that in the name of their God, they're persecuting believers. And this is happening all over the world. So again, we, a lot of times, it just seems so strange for us. I wanna encourage you to, 
pray for other believers in other, in other parts of the world that are being persecuted. You've ever heard of the Voice of the Martyrs? They've got an app that you can download that actually has you pray for a different people group every week on, on, or every day on what they're going through in their, in their country right now. One report I read about this said that today the persecution and genocide of Christians is worse than any other time. And there's something called the, the World Watch List. It's based on research from 150 countries. And the 2019 list says that in the past year, in these top 50 countries where Christians are persecuted, 245 million Christians experienced high levels of persecution. 245 million. These are our brothers and sisters. 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. So the average is like 11 per day Christians are being killed in the world today. 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. In seven of those top countries, again, it was, it was um, militant Muslims doing this. So this is what's going on today. This is not like past history. This is today. And in our culture, in our country today, we're becoming more and more post-Christian and anti-Christian. And we just need to realize, like, it's been a blessing that we've lived in this. But to not be surprised. That's why Jesus tells you this. So how do you prepare for persecution? How do you get ready in all of this? Well, let me read you from Hebrews 10 and then give you an example that hopefully will help you. In Hebrews 10 it says, verse 32, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Did you guys see what the solution is, how you endure? He talked about you guys were able to endure the confiscation of your property, all this suffering, because you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So I want you to imagine you go to Family Dollar and you get one of these plastic mini trophs. You ever seen these? Like, they're cheap. You go back to your car, you're about to pull out of the parking lot, and this guy comes up with a gun to your window, and you roll the window down, and he goes, give me your mini trophy. Now you're sitting there, like your iPhone's there, your wallet's there, maybe you get your laptop next to you, your car, your wedding, you got all this stuff, and you're like, you want, my, you want this? He goes, yeah, your mini trophy for your life, <laughs> right? How hard would it be for you to be like, uh, sure, like, would it be a decision? Would, it be, would there be any moment of wrestling through like, oh, but ugh, what am I going to do without this? <laughs> no, right? Because, you know, this is nothing. If you're going to take this, I've got so much more. That's, that's nothing to me. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is reminding the believers here is the way you are able to endure all that stuff is you knew you got something else. There's an expression, unfortunately, where people talk about you Christians are so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. You guys ever heard of this? In other words, all we think about is eternity and all this other stuff while people are suffering in the meantime and uh, you're not doing anything about it. I think the opposite is true. If I really am heavenly minded, if I really do believe all my treasures are in heaven, that I could lose all of this stuff and it's stuff, then my hands are gonna be way more willing to give it away. I'm gonna be way more generous. I'm not gonna be selfish or clinging to it. 
Does that make sense? But imagine if I'm going to bed at night, like, okay, do I know where my mini trophy is? What am I going to do tomorrow? i got to polish this tomorrow. I'm thinking about, like, how many more can I get? You'd be like, okay, something's wrong with your priorities, right? But this is what God is saying. When you have your, your treasure in a, in a better place, in another place, all of this other stuff that you're going to lose anyways is okay. You can handle persecution because you know, like, well, this isn't all there is. And the world sees, when the world sees, he has something that this world can't offer and death can't take away. They'll want what you have, right? But when they see us wanting all the same stuff, it doesn't look like I have a treasure anywhere else in the world. So number one, Jesus tells them, prepare for persecution. I think hopefully that'll help you get ready for that. So to witness in this hostile world, I've got to face the difficulty of that task that I may be persecuted, I may be killed for my faith. That's, that's a reality that we need to, to recognize. Number two, the second thing you need to do that he's telling the disciples is to widen your horizon. They were really focusing right now on their own sorrow. Like, wait a minute, you're leaving me? Wait a minute, I thought that we were, wait, this isn't part of my plan. And they were wrestling with this. If you look in verse four, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In other words, if you think about it, the disciples were never really persecuted while Jesus was with them, right? It was always kind of, he was taking flack for everything. They didn't really experience persecution. So he says, I'm telling you this because before, this hasn't happened yet because I was with you. Now, in verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So again, their faces are probably pretty downcast like, Okay, what are you talking about? How could you leave us? This isn't part of the plan. And what he's explaining there is, and when he says, by the way, none of you say, has said to me, where are you going? Earlier, Peter asked a question kind of like that, and Thomas said in chapter 14, like, wait, we don't know the way. What he's really saying here is that none of you is really, has really been interested in knowing where I'm going and seeing the big picture. Your question right now has been like, well, wait, you're leaving me? It's kind of like your little kid, you're going to work, and they're like, wait, you're gonna leave me? And they're only thinking about, you're not going to play Legos with me right now? And you've got bigger things in mind. Or like you're taking your spouse to the ER and your teenager's like, well, but who's going to take me to Mike's party? You'd be like, uh, you're, there's bigger things going on here, right? What Jesus is saying is none of you have really been thinking through like, okay, but where am I really going? Do you realize there's something bigger going on here? Like the redemption of all mankind? Like there's a bigger picture here. And it's so easy for me though in my life to just think of, my needs and my wants and not picture, okay, God's got something bigger going on that it's, it's more than just my own sorrow or bummer that I'm, I'm having to deal with. I don't have an eternal perspective. Even in my prayers, I heard someone say one time, if the Lord answered all of your prayers from this past year, would the world change or just your world? Think about that for a minute. Like, what are my prayers even about? Like, how is my perspective just about, but I want, but I need, but I, rather than what is God's big plan of what he's doing in this church, in this city, in this country, in the world? And so Jesus is telling them, listen, you're not really thinking about like the big picture here. You're all just bummed that, that I'm gonna be leaving you and things are gonna change and it's not what you thought, but there's a, there's a bigger thing going on here. So application from that is, if I'm gonna be an effective witness in this world, I've gotta get my focus off of my feelings, my immediate wants, my needs, Focus on the Lord's glory, spreading the gospel, okay? And this is why he says, it's better that I go away. If you look in verse seven, 
Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We've talked about the Holy Spirit, but this is, these are kind of hinge verses where how God is relating to humanity is about to change, where the Holy Spirit would come upon people for different works in the Old Testament. Now he's gonna be in them and empowering them. And he's saying, I know that you're bummed that I'm gonna be leaving, but there's something better coming along. Better than me with you is the Holy Spirit in you. To do this task, to get, your, get you ready for persecution, to get your minds on bigger things, you need the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, to remind you of these things. And he's got a work to do. And so just don't think about right now what's about to happen. Think of the big picture of how God is, is redeeming the world. The last thing that he talks about is in verse eight is, is on the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So a third application I want to make sure we come away with is to grasp the gospel. Prepare for persecution. Widen your horizon but then grasp the gospel. Understand what the Holy Spirit does and why this message is so important that we get it. Because we're entrusted to pass this message on. That's our role. And it's going to involve saying some things that are uncomfortable for people. Sin and righteousness and judgment. Those aren't popular topics. People don't like hearing those kinds of things. Let me talk real quick the need of conviction in general. The word that Jesus uses there, the Greek word for convict, means to expose or to convince It's a legal term used when an attorney presents his case in such a clear light that the truth of his client's position becomes obvious. For us, it means to set forth the truth of the gospel in such a clear light that men are able to accept or reject it intelligently. Now, conviction of sin doesn't automatically always end with someone trusting Christ to be their savior. It's it's a necessary component, but it's not sufficient. They've got to combine it with faith and it's manifest in repentance, right? But conviction in general is an important thing that people, people don't like. In our relativistic, autonomous culture where I get to do what I want to do and I get to decide right and wrong, I don't like conviction. But Jesus then gets even more specific. He says there's three things the Holy Spirit is going to convict us about, convict the world about. The first one, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Sin, not a popular topic. Again, like I said, a lot of sermons end up just being on all the happy stuff. But here's the deal. What makes the good news good news is for me to understand really the seriousness of my sin. What what makes it sound so amazing is when I understand like, okay, I'm I'm really in 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 trouble before a holy God. Now, conviction of sin changes. As you get older, there's things that I'm convicted of now when I, that I look back that I've done in the past, like, wow, and a lot of that has happened because of the Holy Spirit and his word. There's things that I'm aware of now that I wasn't aware of before. That's, that's natural as you're growing. But there's gotta be some awareness of your sin for you to receive the gospel, for you to understand, okay, what's this message going on here? And if people only tell you, hey, God loves you, it, it, it almost doesn't really help them understand the gospel. One of the things... As parents, maybe for a lot of you, you've thought of uh, the first song you teach your kids is Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And I don't want my kids to grow up thinking like, well, of course Jesus loves me. It's me, right? Like, 
of course. Of course he should love me. That doesn't, it doesn't help people understand like how amazing it is that he loves you. So we need to be convicted of sin. And it's interesting, don't you think, that Jesus identifies the thing that the Holy Spirit's gonna do is convict people about their unbelief concerning sin because they don't believe in me. If you were to ask most people on the street, name some of the big sins out there that you'd hear like child abuse and murder and maybe adultery, I don't know, but probably you wouldn't hear unbelief in Jesus. But Jesus says, this is the main thing that I'm gonna convict, that the Holy Spirit's gonna convict the world of because that's the root issue, believing in Jesus. Even in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So belief in Jesus is the first thing that's gonna be convicted. And then he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, when it comes to righteousness, he alone is the standard. The fact that he was able to rise from the dead, he conquered sin and death, and then ascend back to the Father and sit at the right hand, that was God's stamp of approval that this is my righteous son. He didn't have a taint, a taint of sinfulness in him at all. Ravi Zechariah says this about the ascension. The ascension is a promise kept and a promise given. Jesus returning to the Father in heaven, mission accomplished. Jesus in like manner will return for his bride, the beautiful hope as the mission to be culminated on earth. The first installment is paid, the consummation awaits. So Jesus is saying when it comes to righteousness, this is the standard, I'm the standard. And then the last one he says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Whenever you have sin and you have righteousness, judgment's gotta follow, because there's this contrast. And again, we don't like talking about a holy God that's gonna judge sin, that's gonna take sinner, you know, sinners seriously and hold you accountable, and so people are more drawn a lot of times to, like Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, that came out a number of years ago that was rightly condemned as heretical, but it's, it resonates with a lot of people like, ah, but there's judgment, and that sounds like a, a mad God. And here's, here's the, a couple things the way I think of the gospel. First of all, Satan is, is judged. He's been condemned, okay? Uh, you can read all about his doom in the book of Revelation, all those things. He's roaming around right now like a roaring lion looking to devour people, but his doom is for sure. Like, we know that. He's already been judged. But people need to understand that there is a judgment. It's interesting. There's just a side note. The whole book of Acts, with all of the sermons and all the witnessing going on in the whole book, the word love is never mentioned once in the book of Acts. Now, it's, it's talked about other places in the Bible, so it doesn't mean it's not important or implied there, but think about that for a minute. The message that the early church was trying to get across to people was the seriousness of, you're gonna stand before a holy God, and, and you need to know how you, how you deal with that day. That's for certain going to happen. And so he's talking about judgment, the rule of this world's being judged, and I think a lot of people, again, were uncomfortable with that. The way I think of um, sharing the gospel is this, if I could kind of summarize this. God's holiness demands that I be perfect because he's a holy God, right? I'm not, though, but that's what his holiness demands. And God's justice demands that my sins be punished, which I don't want to bear. So I've got perfection and punishment that I'm in, I'm in trouble with, right? So what is the solution? Well, the solution is God says, here's the deal. I'll allow my son's life to count as your perfection, and I'll allow my son's sin-bearing death to count as your punishment. It's salvation by substitution. 
if you can think of it that way. This is, this is what God has offered to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. That's the offer that he holds out there. And so it makes the good news good is when I realize, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm in trouble before a holy God. It would be really mean for a doctor to come out to a patient who's sitting there in the waiting room sipping his latte and to say, hey, uh, we just got done with your test results and stuff. I have something that I want you to drink here and uh, it tastes better than what you're drinking. It'll make your way here more enjoyable. Okay, and he gives him like this weird colored drink. Well, what if the guy drinks it and he's like, uh, I don't really like the taste of that. And then he looks around and like people are laughing at him because he's drinking a weird colored thing. Like he's probably gonna be like, okay, Never mind, that was weird, right? Whatever the doctor said, that doesn't make sense. And then imagine the doctor while he's leaving says, oh, and by the way, I, uh, I sold my house so that you can have that. He'd be like, what? You're weird. Why would you, I, this doesn't make sense. But now imagine that a doctor comes out, different doctor, comes to his patient quietly sipping his coffee and says, here's the deal. Um, we did your test results and it's not good. And he pulls out charts and his medical book and he shows him listen, this is a terminal disease of left untreated. Like these are all the symptoms that you have. And, and eventually the patient is sitting there beginning to believe it himself. And he's probably gonna ask the question, well, is there a cure? And now imagine the doctor saying, actually there is, and here it is. And he gives him that same drink. Now here's my question. Does he care how it tastes? No, it's saving his life. Does he care about anyone else in the room laughing at him? No, this saved my life. You see the difference there? If we only tell people all the benefits of coming to Jesus and you need all this stuff and he'll give you all this, okay, that's, there are some things there. There's also persecution, though, that's not gonna come along, that's gonna come along with that. People are gonna feel like, okay, maybe, I don't know, you guys lied to me. I don't, I don't get it why that was such a big deal. But when we tell people, let me tell you your real dilemma. Let me tell you what's really going on, that, that all of our hearts are desperately wicked and this is your only cure. Now they're ready to receive the antidote. Does that make sense now? And then what if the doctor said, and by the way, this isn't covered on your insurance, and I knew that, so I sold my house so that you could have it. Does that change things now? What kind of, you did what sacrifice so that I, right? So this is why it's important when Jesus is talking about sin and righteousness and judgment, it's not out of, out of spite or anger or wrath, it's like I am telling you the symptoms and the disease so that you understand what the cure is. That's why Jesus is the only way. No one else is our sinless substitute. No other antidote was, was sufficient for us. So those three things are what God calls us to do, to witness in this hostile world. You need to prepare for persecution. Just be ready. Don't be surprised. When it happens, remember, oh yeah, this is what Jesus said was gonna happen. You need to widen your horizon. What, what am I thinking about? Am I only thinking about my little world here or am I trying to grasp God's bigger picture in, in what's going on all around me. And then I really need to grasp the gospel. What is it that has been my amazing rescue? Am I overwhelmed that God would rescue me, that he would offer that to me, and then now I have that message that I can share with other people? That's what God calls me, calls me to do. That's really narrow, I realize, saying Jesus is the only way. It's exclusive, right? People get offended by that. Jesus is the one who said, there's only one way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if this helps, let me, let me help you think of it this way. Imagine I, I'm, I'm going to 
for you young people, I don't know if you even do uh, invitations anymore. Everything's probably all by phone. But imagine I'm going to have a party, and I give you a, an invitation to my party. And you get the invitation, and here's what it says. Directions. Let's pretend this is a school party. From school, head towards Main Street, and then turn right or left, depending on how you feel. Drive as far as you want and turn on whichever road seems like a good one. Pick any house you like, and you're at my party. Now, if you got that invitation from me, would it sound like I really want you at my party? <laughs> no, probably not. It's because if I wanted you at my party, I would give you specific directions on how to get there. I would tell you, no, 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 don't go that way. Watch out. This is, you need to know this. Here's exactly, right? Because I want you at my party. If God wants people in heaven, he's telling them, I want to make sure you don't fall for these wrong ways of thinking. That it's not how you feel, it's nothing you have to earn, it's not whatever seems right to you. This is, this is the cure, this is the way, this is how you get here. Does that make sense? This is where he's leading us to. This is why he gets specific in these, in these pronouncements about, no, sin is a big deal. Righteousness is only through my son. Judgment is going to follow, but I've got good news. There's a way that you can have salvation by substitution, and that's what I offer. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder from your word. And Lord, I know that it's so easy when things go wrong that I want to run, when things don't go my way, or when there's um, even what I might even think of as persecution, which isn't really. And God, I, I so easily get focused on my own um, agenda that I forget the bigger picture of what you're doing. So Lord, I pray that my treasure, that our treasure would be in you. God, that we would focus on what truly matters. And Lord, that we would boldly proclaim the gospel to this world that's gonna be hostile, that doesn't like the truth of the gospel. But Lord, I pray that we would speak the truth in love, that these reminders, these encouragements from Jesus' last words here to comfort us and to remind us of who he is and what he's done and what the Holy Spirit does in us. God, I pray that we would apply that to our lives, that we wouldn't be scared and run, but we would be bold in our faith and... Um, glorify you in all that we do. So Lord, we thank you for your words. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.